Good afternoon. I'm Judge John Arrowood. To my right is Judge Julie Flood. To my left is Judge Carolyn Thompson. We are the panel designated to hear the Turpin versus the Charlotte Latin School this afternoon. We'll hear from the appellant. Thank you, Judge Arrowood. May it please the court. My name is Chris Edwards, and I represent Doug and Nicole Turpin. At this time, I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Have you, you've already talked about that with the... Yes, Your Honor. I want to make very clear at the outset, we don't view this case as being about Latin's diversity, equity, or inclusion policies. We well, don't... all of your uh, amici seem to have viewed it that way. That's what they wrote in your behalf. That is what they wrote, Your Honor, but as you know, we didn't contribute to the writing of those briefs, and so uh, that's not how we see the case. Uh, this, from our perspective, is not a case about Latin's DEI policies. It's not a case about allowing the Turpins to control what Latin teaches, but it, it's instead a case about uh, the contractually protected right for the Turpins to speak to Latin, for the Turpins and Latin to have a productive conversation. And that's a, that's a right that I think crosses a lot of boundaries. Um, it's not just about DEI. I know that this case it's the contractual, itself. But this is governed by the contractual agreement that your client made with Latin, isn't it? It is, Your Honor, and that, that's going to be the first thing that I touch on. I think the con but I think the, the impossibility standard that we're talking about here, Latin's decision to terminate the agreement, it has to be viewed absent the political circumstances. And instead, it needs to be viewed with light, taking the facts in the light most favorable to the Turpins. This is a scenario that could arise at any school and in any different classroom, different subject matter, even in a case where there is a, I guess, a school moving more conservative that would upset some parents who were pro-DEI. Uh, at bottom, if you view the facts in the light most favorable to the Turpins, it's our position that removing the innuendo and removing the conclusions that Latin has asked the school, this court to draw that the trial court erred in dismissing the complaint and this court should reverse its order. I'm happy to take the claims in any order that the court's interested, but I'm gonna address them, at least my, my intention is to address them as the contract claim, then moving into the tort claims, the fraud, the unfair trade practices, the negligent infliction of emotional distress, and finally the defamation claims. That, that's not to the exclusion of the other two claims that the uh, negligent hiring, retention, and supervision claim, or the claim for negligent misrepresentation. But, but by and large, those claims are bound up, and I think our brief acknowledges that those claims are to some extent bound up in the merits of those other claims. Turning first to the contract claim, the trial court erred when it dismissed the Turpin's breach of contract claim. I've got three points. Uh, the second and the third are related to Latin's escape clauses, the circumstances under which it could permissibly terminate the contract. But the first issue relates to the standard of review. I'd invite the court to read Latin's brief critically. It is, it's full of slanted language, language that would suggest that it's drawing factual conclusions and making findings or advocating that the court make findings consistent with the role of the jury. Uh, Latin, consi Latin consistently says that it made reasonable conclusions 
it characterizes the turbines as assailing the school. Those aren't permissible or proper inferences on Rule 12b-6. Instead, the court should view the case for what it is, which is a parent asking questions and trying to understand the, where his child's school is going in terms of curriculum and culture where the school is going, where, whether the administration and the board know about that, and whether they approve of the direction of the school. Turning to the termination provisions, Latin's argued, just at the outset, Latin's argued that we've waived this argument. That, that's simply not true. The complaint is very clear that Latin violated the binding obligation to educate <coughs> orphan children. Similarly, we argued that in the trial court. Latin has come in to justify that termination, pointing to these two provisions in the contract. But the waiver argument, that's simply not there, because we have raised these issues. We raised the failure of Latin to honor its commitment to educate OT and LT in the trial court. Latin has raised these issues as to backstop or to justify its decision. Turning to the impossibility provision, this is, again, looking at the facts in the light most favorable to the Turpins. And I think the court should look at the timeline, the arc here. We have a July conversation setting up a meeting between the Turpins and the board, or not the Turpins, but the Refocus Latin Group, the 10-parent Refocus Latin Group and the board. That's followed up in August by a meeting, all the while promising no retaliation, all the while promising that the group's input would be heard, encouraging the group to make a specific PowerPoint presentation, which the court has seen. And then there comes the September email chain. Mr. Turpin, as we've alleged in the complaint, he hears from his son, LT, that LT's heard some things that concern him in class. It's not just about DEI. It's not about it's not about DEI at all. I think the allegations in the complaint, or at least what's relayed in the email, is the statement that Republicans are white supremacists. LT takes that statement to his dad. He also says, hey, dad, my teacher won't let me pull down my mask to drink water. I'm not allowed to go to the restroom. And so Mr. Turpin reacts in a way that I think any concerned parent would upon learning that his child had been, I think, unfairly singled out. It's based on those three limited interactions that Latin concluded that apparently it was impossible for the Turpins to have a positive collaborative working relationship. Viewing those three interactions in the light most favorable to the Turpins, I, I don't think that Latin could permissibly draw that conclusion. I think that we need additional discovery, we need additional factual development before we can figure out whether or not the Turpins actually made that relationship impossible and whether Latin sincerely held that belief. Just based on three interactions, it should not be enough that Latin determined, it should not be enough to support the conclusion of impossibility. We acknowledge this is a contractual relationship, but at the same time, Latin drafted the contract and if it had wanted to make its termination provision more flexible and not inclusive of the word impossible, it could have done that. Well, it did make it somewhat more. It says impossible or seriously interfere. So it's not in a, a total impossible standard. Now is it, sir? You're correct, Judge Arrowwood. Impossibility is one of the two prongs. The other prong is it's by an or, not an and. That's correct. That I, I agree with you 100%, Judge Arrowwood. It is two 
different provisions. And to, to the point you're getting at, I have to succeed on both of those for you to reverse the trial court's order. I understand that. But I do think moving to that second prong, the serious interference issue, the interference is targeted. If you look at that sentence, it says, seriously interfere with the school's mission. The school's mission, as we have alleged it, and as Latin admits on page 14 of its brief, the school's mission is to educate children, to turn them into future leaders. Questioning the administration, simply asking for answers about the direction the school is going in, viewing the facts in the light most favorable to my clients, isn't interfering with that goal at all. It doesn't touch on children, it doesn't touch on learning, but even to the extent that it does, again, looking at the limited number of interactions that are referenced in the complaint, July, an invitation to a meeting, August, a meeting specifically designed to extract this information from, from the Turpins and from the rest of Refocus Latin, and then finally a September email raising separate issues about classroom culture unrelated to the school's curriculum and culture, addressing things that the teacher has said, addressing things that LT was prohibited from doing, in that progression, viewing the facts in the light most favorable to my client, the trial court erred when it dismissed the claim, when it determined that the Turpins had satisfied one or both of those standards, or that, that Latin had permissibly satisfied one or both of those standards. Moving on, I'd like to touch on the fraud claim. I do believe that there seem to be two issues here. The first is reliance, and the second issue is uh, falsity. As it relates to reliance, I would encourage the court to read Latin's brief on pages 18 through 20. Latin's heading says detrimental reliance. Detrimental reliance implies causation. Latin has not cited any case or any authority to explain or to further detrimental reliance, and so it's our contention that under Appellate Rule 28, Latin has abandoned the causation argument. Instead, the case that Latin cites and the, the actual case law that it quotes concerns actual and reasonable reliance. Uh, let me um, back up here just a moment about under the appellate rules. Um, what do the appellate rules say about appellees abandoning arguments? I'm not familiar with that standard that you just talked about, I don't think. Your Honor, the appellate rules, both Rule 28 requires the appellant's brief to set out the contentions for each position. The appellate rule concerning appellees incorporates that provision, and so it should be construed identically. So Is if there Latin does a case construing it that way that you're aware of, I have a case indicating that appellees can waive arguments. I d we have not cited it in the brief. I would add, Your Honor, I think that construing it in a different way would violate basic principles of, statu of statutory construction. If, it's, if it is good for the appellant, the appellee also needs to present the argument to the court under the party presentation doctrine. In terms of detrimental reliance, they've only cited actual and reasonable reliance cases. We have alleged actionable, actual reliance in paragraph 124 of the complaint where the allegation is made that Mr. Turpin would not have gone to the meeting but for the representation that it would be only about LT's concerns. In addition, reasonable reliance, Latin makes the point in its brief that 
Mr. Turpin should have inquired further, but I think if you dissect the email exchange between Mr. Turpin and Mr. Balaban, the head of middle school, the, the middle school principal, so to speak, at Latin, it's very clear that Mr. Balaban, throughout the email, refers to only the issues raised in Mr. Turpin's email, and he does not ever explain that there will be anything else. Now, even if you disagree with me, and I get the feeling you might, that athletes can waive arguments, uh, I think that there still has been detrimental reliance because, and it's, it's a little bit circuitous to get there, but bear with me. The parent-school partnership indicates, and there's no dispute between the parties at this point, that the parent-school partnership is a binding contract. Paragraph six, of the, paragraph six of the enrollment agreement incorporates it. It then references the family handbook. There is then an allegation on page 13 and 14 of the record indicating that the family, school, the family handbook then essentially reincorporates the parent-school partnership. So you're there, uh, even if it's not the cleanest path. So once we get there, what we see is that the, the, family, the family handbook has to be enforced in an equitable, appropriate, and uh, fair manner. And so it's our position that that requires at some point, at uh, some amount of notice, if those words are to mean anything. And so by having Mr. Turpin show up at the hearing without notice, without an understanding about what may or may not happen to his children in advance, those words guaranteeing them to, guaranteeing Mr. Turpin a degree of notice, he was, he detrimentally relied because he forewent his chance to obtain any sort of meaningful review or ability to have a constructive conversation beyond the conversation that was had between he and Baldecki there in the classroom that day. I think the allegation is essentially that Mr. Turpin would have shown up with a lawyer if he had known. Turning to the falsity issue, it, Again, the statement is false, as I touched on earlier, that the meeting was going to be about it, about LT's complaints, because it wasn't about that. Instead, it turned into a surprise expulsion hearing for LT, for OT. Well, there was no expulsion here. It was just they ended the contract. That's not an expulsion, is it? I disagree with that, Your Honor. Expulsion means ending the relationship with the school, and under that definition of expulsion, this is an expulsion. And so I, there is a, there's a dictionary definition that does support that. But even saying that... It's not the first that, dictionary definition, though, is it? Sir? It's not the first definition in the... It is. It is? Yes, Your Honor. To end a relationship in an expulsion that if I ask you to leave, I'm expelling you from something? It's ending the relationship with the school against the student's wishes. In the broadest sense of the term, that is an expulsion. In any event, Your Honor, even adopting the, even adopting the termination language, even if we adopt the termination language, uh, what happens is the contract is terminated, there is no notice, they're told that it's going to be about, that the meeting is going to be about the issues that LT is experiencing in class. They're told that the meeting is going to be about the things that LT's teacher has done or has allegedly done that LT's relayed to his father. And instead of that, it turns into something else. It turns into a pretense to terminate the contract. And so based on that, we think that is a false representation. That Mr. Balaban knew ahead of time that that was the intent of the meeting. Mr. Baldecki has copied on that email. Mr. Baldecki sees that the representation has been made and he, he takes no steps to correct it. And so from that position, Balaban has made a false statement. Baldecki then has made a materially misleading omission by failing to speak. Turning to the unfair trade practices claim, 
As the court knows, if we succeed on the fraud claim, the trade practices claim should be reinstated because they're part and parcel of one another. But even putting that aside, I think that there's still basis for the trade practices claim independent of the fraud claim. This is an egregious breach of contract. What we have is the school inviting a dialogue over a period of months and repeatedly promising no retaliation. Mr. Mr. Baldecki is involved at every step of the way. He's at the meeting. It can be inferred that he knew that the school had promised no retaliation. And yet at the end of the day, after making those promises, the school then uses Mr. Turpin's speech against him to terminate the contract, to expel the children. And so in that context, I think it's both deceptive and unfair. Deception doesn't require, it requires reliance, but it doesn't require deceptive intent. And so we have Latin making the statement over and over and over and over and over again, telling the Turpins and the rest of the refocused Latin parents, come to us, speak to us about your concerns. The Turpins do that. They take that invitation. And when they do, the very next time they, do, they follow the exact procedure laid out in the contract, they follow the exact procedure given to them at the end of the board meeting. If you have individual concerns, take them to the administration. They do that. And then at the very next step, the contracts are terminated and the children are expelled. So at a minimum, even if it's not fraud, it becomes something amounting to a deceptive practice or an inequitable assertion of power. I want to highlight really quickly, this is a business. It, it, it may be a, a nonprofit business, but this is a business, not a public school. And so the Turpins are the school's consumers, and it has an obligation to deal with them in good faith. And so by inviting them to come in, by inviting them to speak, and then by summarily terminating the contract, kicking the kids out of school after repeatedly inviting Mr. Turpin's comments, that's an inequitable assertion of power, and it should be actionable under the Unfair Trade Practices Act. Can you point me in your complaint to um, what your wording was as to the fact that this act was inter-affecting commerce? Your Honor, no one has disputed that this act was inter-affecting commerce. Uh, I, I don't know the exact paragraph citation because Latin has not disputed that it's in commerce. I, to the extent that you're touching on the single market entity or the, the closed entity as it relates to the management of an LLC, we're dealing with people who are in an arm's length commercial relationship governed by a contract. The Turpins are not, they're not shareholders, they're, <coughs> not, uh, they're not employees. And so I think that this is, it, it's not sui generis. It's, it's comparable to any small private business in a contract with another party. And so while I do, I, I apologize for not being able to point you to the specific paragraph, but again, no one has raised that issue. Turning to the negligent infliction claim, uh, unless, Judge Flood, unless you have any additional questions about the unfair trade practices claim, uh, uh, turning to the negligent infliction claim, I want to start with this assertion that these are intentional acts and therefore can't give rise to a negligence claim. I think our Supreme Court's decision in Hart against Ivy dispels that. The cases that Latin cites all relate to the intent to harm rather than a volitional or an intentional act. So it is. It is different than uh, a circumstance where someone intends to terrorize someone. We, we don't dispute that in that context, you could not raise a negligent infliction of emotional distress claim. 
But here, the context is an intentional, an intentional or volitional act that has repercussions of which the tortfeasor should be aware. And so that's different than intentional infliction of emotional distress. Instead, it is negligence. Uh, again, I think Hart against Ivy, that's a, that's a, that's a dram shop case where the defendant overserved, overserved a party goer, which is unquestionably intentional in terms of serving drinks. <coughs> the party goer then left and got into an accident with the plaintiff. The defendant's intentional act of serving drinks, of, of serving the party goer, then turns into negligence at a later date. And so that's not a negligent infliction case, but I do think that same principle, that distinction between intention and negligence, is applicable here. As it relates to the duty, the foreseeability issue, again, our Supreme Court has said that this is a fact-bound issue. Many of the cases, though I will concede not all of them, are summary judgment cases, not 12B6 cases. And so I think that this is an area that's ripe for factual development. We are not relying simply on Ms. Turpin's parent-child relationship with, with the parent-child relationship. There are other indicia that should have made Latin aware that she would suffer severe emotional distress. I think one of the important ones is the specific time frame, the context in which the claim arises. This is the only place the children have ever gone to school. It's after the beginning of the school year, and it is at a time when the children are having, would have had a difficult time obtaining anywhere else to go to school given the COVID-19 pandemic. I think that those are all important factors for the court to look at when determining whether Ms. Turpin was a foreseeable victim. That's beyond the parent-child relationship as those are extraneous circumstances. They're not bound up in the fact that she loves her children, but this is instead uh, an additional stress on the Turpin family. And so I think that on this standard on this record without the benefit of discovery, I think it, it was inappropriate for the trial court to dismiss that claim, and so the court should reverse. Very briefly, I want to touch on the defamation claim. First, I'll address Latin's assertion that the statements were not ever concerning the Turpins. That's, that's inconsistent with our Supreme Court's decision in Carter against Ivy. The statements are all made in connection where they reference the PowerPoint, right? The statements all say that this was said in the PowerPoint. They're all taking information from the PowerPoint. We know that there were only 10 individuals who presented that PowerPoint, who put the PowerPoint together. That creates this kind of closed universe like the 11 jurors in Carter. And so this is unlike a case where you say, I believe this is the Taub case that both parties cited in their briefs. It's unlike saying a sergeant with the Asheville Police Department is a bigot. It, it, that makes, in that context, none of, the, none of the sergeants or the police officers, none of them have an actionable claim, but in the context where you defame everyone in a group, in a limited identifiable group, I think that everyone in the group has a claim under the court's decision in Carter. <coughs> Finally, as it relates to falsity, these statements are false. Uh, viewing the statements in the light most favorable to the Turpins, reading the PowerPoint in the light most favorable to the Turpins, that PowerPoint presentation expresses concern for the future of the school. It's about the, it's the quote unquote, eventually erode language. And I know that Latin is going to tell you, no, 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 look at these specific instances of language referencing the present operation of the school. 
I don't think that's good enough. In many cases, they are unrelated. The, the complaints or the issues made with the present operation of the school don't relate to the admission of students or the hiring of faculty based on diversity, which is what the defamatory statements are about. They're instead, they are instead statements about, you know, the, the Turpins or the refocused Latin parents believing something is or is not age appropriate uh, and that the school is doing things, you know, perhaps inappropriately with uh, the younger grades. Instead, the, the statements themselves are very targeted, they're very specific as they relate to refocus Latin's alleged belief that current faculty and students were hired not based on merit but based on diversity, whatever that means, uh, in the context of the statement. So the statements are false because if you read the PowerPoint as a whole and you remove the innuendo that Latin is going to ask you to give it, if you read it in the light most favorable to my client, those statements are untrue and they injure my client's reputation. I have a few seconds left, but if there are no further questions, I'll yield the balance of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you, Judge. Thank you, Your Honors. May it please the Court. Jennifer Van Zant from Brooks Pierce in Greensboro on behalf of the defendants. Um, with your, the court's indulgence, um, I'm going to talk about the claims in a slightly different order than Mr. Edwards did. But first, this case is about whether a private school may preserve its institutional autonomy to set its own policies and curriculum. To further that control over its own school, Latin included in its contracts the right to terminate enrollment agreements if Latin determined that a positive collaborative working relationship was proving impossible. That's exactly what happened here. The Turpins had a dispute with Charlotte Latin about its policies related to diversity and inclusion, masking, and vaccination. Those were hot topics in 2020 and 2021, and Latin's position on those policies was known when the Turpins entered into enrollment agreements in the spring of 2021 for the upcoming year. Now you've heard much about the PowerPoint presentation from the Refocus Latin Group on August 24, 2021. But unlike other members of Refocus Latin, the Turpins would not let it go. They persisted with a follow-up email, which Mr. Edwards did not discuss, on August 29, 2021, bringing up the very same points. The well, video. he would argue, I believe, that what he said was that they followed up pursuant to the board's request and that those points, that that's their follow-up. Uh, well, Your, Your Honor, if, if you read the, um, the email, which is at Documentary Exhibit 52, it's, this, it's the same points. The video about the history of the Latin, politics in school, merit, equality versus equity, masks, and demanding action. And then on September 7th, they raised yet more issues um, the complaint and the incorporated documents make it clear the Turpins were not going to yield. Accordingly, Charlotte Latin exercised its contractual right and terminated the agreements. Now, the Turpins knew when they entered the enrollment agreements what was happening at Latin, and they're free to choose another private school 
where they feel comfortable with the curriculum. The very point of private education, <coughs> whether it be religious, classical, progressive, Montessori, experiential, is that schools can set a curriculum and policies and then parents can choose schools that match their personal ideologies. Affirming the trial court's order will affirm that in North Carolina, a private school may set its own course and may preserve a contractual right to separate from parents who want their children educated differently. It seems, Council, that you've started in saying that there are a lot of different pieces that factored into this. In your opening brief, however, it says when it became clear that the Turpins were irreconcilably opposed to Latin's DEI efforts, specifically, Latin exercised its contractual discretion to discontinue its relationship. So I'm a little confused as to whether it was based on that decision or whether it was based on this wide variety. Thank you, Your Honor. So no, no doubt that DEI was the prevailing theme in um, the Turpin's complaints, but they did bring up the other issues. In, at the um, end of the August 29th email, they talk about vaccination, they talk about masks. They, they were unhappy with the direction of the school and they repeatedly told the school that. And based on the Turpin's own statements saying that they did not know if the school was a good fit for them, they were asking these questions so that they could figure that out, Latin concluded that the relationship was impossible, the positive collaborative working relationship. The, the defamation claims, plaintiffs have pled themselves out of a defamation claim. This, the statements at issue are a September 14, 2021 email signed by all the Latin board members. And this is the only claim that involves the individual defendants, all the, all the Latin board members. The board categorically rejects the assertion that diverse students and faculty have not earned their positions and honors at Latin and that diversity comes at the expense of excellence. The plaintiffs also allege a slander claim. They based it on an oral statement that it was said in the PowerPoint that the school accepts students and hires faculty because of their color and that those students and faculty are also not up to the merits of the school. Now, the, that's the gist of what the PowerPoint says. And Desmond, this North Carolina Supreme Court case in 2020 tells us that you cannot, obviously you cannot recover if a statement is true. And if a statement's substantially true, it's not materially false. That means that the gist of this or the sting of the statement must be true, even if minor details are not. The gist of a statement is the main point or heart of the matter in question. The PowerPoint said right beside the word standards, a document, documentary exhibit, page 37, admissions is weighting diversity over academic excellence. On the same page, they said, on also beside the word standards, the weighting of DEI and critical theory on a culturally responsive education eventually erodes the quality of student, quality of curriculum, quality of teacher and the academic rigor of the school. On page 38 of those exhibits, beside meritocracy, the PowerPoint says, Latin moving away from education meritocracy 
in line with the progressive concepts of restorative justice and equity. And it also says there, there's an emphasis on DEI faculty professional development rather than subject matter expertise. And it then it goes on, page 39. The PowerPoint talks about the assistant head of school and complains about her hiring and poses the question, is equity racial preferences? Last, on page 44 of those exhibits, the PowerPoint says, DEI goals superseding optimizing evaluations for admitting most qualified students and hiring most qualified faculty. Now, plaintiff's counsel had, in the briefing tried to explain those statements away, saying they were dire predictions of the future. But that, respectfully, is a strained reading. The gist of those statements is that diverse students and faculty have not <coughs> earned their positions and honors at Latin, and that diversity comes at the excellence of, of it. The diversity comes at the expense of excellence. And that the school accepts students and hires faculty because of their color and that they're not up to the merit. That's the gist of the PowerPoint. It's a straightforward reading. And under Desmond, those statements are substantially true. Second, we briefed this extensively. We read the, the Carter v. King case differently. The Carter v. King case involved a, a jury verdict 11 to 1, a jury issue 11 to 1, and the, there was a statement that each of the jurors was bribed. And the jurors were known and ascertainable, and here there is no, nothing on that PowerPoint reveals the names of the members of Refocus Latin. The exhibits make clear that not every member of Refocus Latin was among the 10 people who came to the meeting. This case is much closer to the Taub case where the reference to a supervisor was not enough to withstand a 12B6 um, dismissal. Your Honor, turning to the breach contract case um, claim. It's a breach contract case. The question is whether under the plain language of the parent school partnership, did Latin have the contractual right to terminate the agreement? Based on the facts alleged and the communications incorporated, Latin exercised that right. To find otherwise would inject unpredictability and instability into the contractual relationship between Latin and its parents. First, plaintiffs have waived any argument that the termination provision was breached. Below, you can read the transcript of the hearing below. Uh, at page 43, plaintiffs argued that Latin violated the, the parent school partnership in three ways. They breached the promise to educate the children, Allegedly, they allege they breached the promise to uphold and enforce the rules in the family handbook, and they allege that they denied the Turpins an opportunity to fulfill the communication provisions. They simply never argued before we got to this court that the termination provision in the parent school partnership was breached. It's not in the complaint. It wasn't in the transcript of the hearing below. It was waived. Now, looking at the breach contract um, language itself. Plaintiff's counsel, of course, as plaintiff's counsel should, heavily weighs, um, uses generic statements about Rule 12b-6, right, that it should be used sparingly. We're all familiar with that language. 
But it is very appropriate to consider a breach of contract on 12b-6. That's because contract interpretation is a matter of law, as your honors know. And then when the plain language of the contract at issue defeats the claim, then we get to 12b-6. You can see that in Interstall v. Hamilton from the Supreme Court in 2019. This is no bare-bones complaint with not much in front of this court. It's 62 pages with 221 paragraphs plus a number of documents. And if we consider the language of the PSP, we can see that plaintiffs gave the court plenty to consider and they pled themselves out of court. Your honors are very familiar with the language. Judge Arrowood asked some very good questions about the language. And as the trial court correctly noted, the enrollment agreement provides the school with unilateral discretionary authority to terminate the enrollment. Now, the key words here are positive, collaborative, working relationship. It means that acceptance and approval, we're going to work jointly. Impossible means not possible. It's clear. It's clear from the complaint. The Turpins were fundamentally opposed to Latin's policies. The Turpins were not going to let it go. They were not going to go away. They said all these things. They continued to attack, yes, predominantly the diversity and inclusion policies, but several other issues at the school. Now, no one could reasonably conclude on the facts pled here that Latin improperly used its discretion. And, in fact, because they don't even plead this section of the provision, they don't allege that Latin was unreasonable in its decision to terminate. One thing that's missing from the complaint also is there's no allegation that anyone else was terminated. No one else's agreements were terminated. Unlike the other Latin parents, the Turpins wouldn't let it go. Again, on September 7th, when Mr. Turpin emailed about complaints about his son's teacher, he still reiterated the same complaints about the school overall. He said, we are looking for the traditional classical education we were promised, not an indoctrination on progressive ideology. That is not what we believe should be taught at Latin and not what we signed up for. So Latin reads that. Latin says they don't want to be here. They don't like what we're offering. A positive, collaborative relationship is not possible with these people. The Turpins were not working with Latin. They were working against it. They complained repeatedly about what Latin was doing. Their allegations about woke poetry demonstrate they were beating a dead horse. Those allegations show up in the complaint. They show up in the PowerPoint exhibit at 45. They show up in the board email, the email to the board, doc exhibit at 51, and again in the September 7th email at doc exhibit 72-73. Latin had the discretion to determine that the relationship was not positive and collaborative and would not be, and then it had the discretion to decide whether to terminate. That discretion came from the party's contract, and this court 
should out uphold that allocation that the parties agreed to. Now, and as Judge Arrowwood pointed out, the, Latin had another option for termination, and it reasonably concluded that the turbines interfered with this mission. Plaintiffs allege at record page 10 that Latin's mission included offering growth promoting opportunities, but plaintiffs were in vocal opposition to what the Latin's curriculum, and they were asking Latin to interfere with individual teachers' promotion approach. That is interference with Latin's mission. There are no allegations that Latin did not honestly determine that the relationship was impossible. Even in their reply brief, plaintiffs concede that the relationship was broken. They said the facts show that the Turpins wanted but could not receive guidance from the school, replied eight. And their argument further revealed they sought confirmation that Latin was committed to its course so that plaintiffs, quote, could make an appropriate decision for his children. Thus revealing plaintiffs themselves knew the relationship was impossible. Now, um, the, there's talk about that the decision was retaliation <coughs> for the speech, but that it, the, there's no, if it's retaliation, doesn't that eviscerate the termination provision? Latin reserved for itself the discretion and it used it. Um, the Turpins had expressed their views. They did not stop there. They were not entitled to carry on a fight with the board and administration until those entities capitulated. The termination was a result of the pers repeated, persistent, vocal disagreement with Latin's approach. There was an unending torrent of vitriol and criticism. Participating in the refocused Latin presentation did not give the Turpins some sort of immunity from ever having their agreement terminated. They kept going and going, and the breach of contract accordingly was properly dismissed. Turning then to the fraud, negligent misrepresentation, and unfair and deceptive claims, those are just spinoffs of the contract claim. It's a contract case. There, um, as discussed above, the enrollment agreement was properly dismissed, terminated, and unfulfilled promises are a breach of contract. They're not enough to support a claim for fraud. And Your Honor, um, with regard to the reliance, we, bri we briefed the reliance issue. Plaintiffs did not waive and raise in their reply in the allegation that we had waived that argument. It's, it's important to note that plaintiffs contend that they were lied to about the purpose of the September meet 10th meeting. But they, there's no allegation that they couldn't have had the contract terminated even if they hadn't come to the meeting. So the September 10th meeting did nothing. It changed nothing. They, Mr. Turpin alleges in the complaint it was a trick to get him to act poorly, and he says it didn't work. I communicated with respect, courtesy, and dignity. But what they doesn't allege, does not allege that but for that meeting couldn't have been terminated. And that, of course, would be not credible and not supported by any of the documents that are incorporated into this complaint. There's also no, <coughs> no false statement. If you look at the email at page 72 of the documentary exhibits, you can see that they were referring to the fact that our teachers do not retaliate and there will be no blowback. 
And there, and there was no blowback from the teachers. Nothing, no, there was no further interaction alleged between the teacher and the student. And furthermore, contrary to the argument, there were, there's nothing in the complaint or that email that says that Mr. Turpin's child was being pulled, was being signaled out for the issue about whether he could take his mask down or whether he could use the restroom. At bottom, there's just no there there. The negligent misrepresentation claim further fails because Mr. Balvin did not owe the Turpins a duty of care. Plaintiffs would extend negligent misrepresentation beyond the limit set by this court and the Supreme Court and, and take it out of the business professional employment or any other transaction in which he has a pecuniary interest. They would change this tort into just a tort for telling an untruth. But that, there, that ignores an element. Because Mr. Bauman had no pecuniary interest in the outcome, the claim should be, was properly dismissed. Now, looking at the unfair and deceptive trade practices claim, um, Judge Flood, I believe paragraph 105 of the complaint actually does address the inter-affected commerce, and that's not something, frankly, that we raised um, below. Um, but the, they are being redundant and circular. They say, we were terminated, and, well, we know breach contract isn't enough, so we need more, but it's the fact that we were terminated. And, and so they're just doubling down on, on that. that. And, and under the case law, that's just not enough um, to take this case out of the normal statement that a breach contract standing alone is not an unfair and deceptive trade practices. Can you there. address in the contract, um, was there a promise for some sort of expulsion process being fair, being equitable? Um, thank you, Your Honor, and respectfully, we disagree with the use of expulsion. Um, okay. Because it was, um, ex we, we contend that to expel um, someone is a disciplinary issue and that what we have here is a termination. But to your point, the bigger point, of course, is, is what, was there an obligation for a due process, right? You know, what, was there an, uh, an obligation that Mr. Turpin would be allowed to bring his attorney, as Mr. Edwards suggested? And, and, and there's, no, there's not, Your Honor. There's no, it, this is a, the, the phrase, the closet issue, um, grants discretionary authority, and this is a private school and um, not a public school, and so there's, there is no due process right um, for the Turpins to have been heard or given notice or anything like that. Thank you. Did that answer your question, Your Honor? Yes, thank you. Okay. Um, moving on to negligent infliction of emotional distress. There, there are two issues that make that claim fail. Mr. Edwards touched on this. There's the dispute about whether or not this was neg negligent, alleged negligent conduct versus intentional conduct. Um, and the plaintiffs can, don't point to any case recognizing a claim for negligent infliction of emotional distress without underlying negligence. The case of Hart v. Ivy just does not apply. There, our Supreme Court recognized a claim for social host liability, which was a negligence claim for serving alcohol. So plaintiffs say, oh, but serving the alcohol was an intentional act. Well, so is driving a car. 
but we see negligence claims arise out of driving a car. It's still the underlying, you still have to have an underlying negligent um, claim, and there is not one here. So, second, as a matter of law, plaintiff cannot establish that her emotional distress was foreseeable. She was not present at the September meeting. There's no allegation that Mr. Baldecci knew or reasonably knew that Mrs. Turpin was susceptible um, to the emotional distress required to establish a claim. Plaintiffs really rely solely on the fact that she was the mother of children who were enrolled at Latin. But like Gardner, um, that claim fails. In Gardner, the Supreme Court affirmed summary judgment where the mother was not present at the accident, but she was in the ER when there were unsuccessful attempts made to resuscitate the child, and that was not enough. So query how under that precedent, having your child being um, no longer part of a school when you were not even present at that decision could rise to that level. And plaintiff also relies on their brief on Sorrell, saying that Sorrell stands for the proposition that knowing a mother exists is enough for foreseeability, but that's not what Sorrell says. And Sorrell's and Gardner were decided on the same day, so they really need to be read together. And they read together, they stand for the proposition that there is no foreseeability here alleged. So alleging that she would be distraught was not enough in your view to rise to the level of some sort of severe emotional distress versus just disappointment. I agree, Your Honor. Um, and because the, and the foreseeability element, of course, is, is missing because there's, you know, it, the, the tort is best used where, um, you know, tragically someone is there. Um, even in um, the Hickman case, um, the Supreme Court, the children's mother, the plaintiff's children were present when their mother was severely injured, but that wasn't enough. And, and on 12B6, they said that was not enough to find that there was foreseeability of the, the harm. Um, last, um, Your Honors, I'm going to address the negligent supervision and retention um, claim. And th that claim, we're, we're all familiar with it. It requires that an incompetent employee commit a tort and that the employee, employer was on notice that the employee might be likely to create, commit that tort. But, well, first of all, we've already covered there's no tort. But the only thing that um, plaintiffs allege <coughs> is that he was incompetent because he shared his personal impression of the, of the PowerPoint. Clearly, Mr. Baldecci did not agree with the PowerPoint, and he said so, uh, according to the complaint. But plaintiffs say that from those statements on September 1st and 2nd, Latin should have anticipated that one week later, he would commit an unfair and deceptive trade practice, fraud, and all these torts. But that those, the fact that he said those things as a matter of law does not rise to the level of unfitness, which is required to establish that um, an employee is incompetent. 
there's no, there was no, there's not enough nexus here. All the cases about negligent retention are, you know, the, the prototypical situation is in Wilkerson, where the, the guy working at the parking deck, he got angry, fussing at people, yelling at people coming in through, and then eventually he hurt somebody. That, that's the sort of relationship, like the kind of, oh, look what's coming. And here, there's not that connection. Um, and so there's not enough alleged as a matter of law to have put um, Latin on notice that Mr. Um, Baldecci would later commit a tort, which of course we contend he didn't commit the tort at all. In conclusion, unless your honors have any um, questions, allowing this case to proceed would restrict freedom of contract and encourage litigation of disputes between private schools and parents. Disputes that should be handled by the marketplace, not the courts. Parents choose private schools for a variety of reasons. Parents should have options and they should exercise them. Allowing this litigation to proceed will restrict the ability of schools to set their own course about their curriculum. Schools will be reluctant to engage on cultural and religious topics that would, and that in itself would harm students and parents alike. Dismissal of this case preserves the ability of schools and parents to establish their relative rights in a contract and the ability of parents to choose the school that matches what they desire for their children. Defendants respectfully request that the decision of the trial court be affirmed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Judge Arrowwood. I have three points on rebuttal. Uh, first, I want to address the contract issue. I, I think Latin has made an excellent jury argument. Um, the emails at issue need to be stripped of their context. They need to be understood for what they are. It, the, email from, uh, the email from September 6th does, in fact, contain assertions that LT, Mr. Turpin's son, had, been, had had some trouble with his teacher, had been not allowed to go to the bathroom, had been not allowed to take down his mask. Uh, and so it's a concerned parent who is following through with exactly what Latin told them to do. At the, after the August meeting, uh, after the August meeting, Latin says, if you have any more problems, individually, we're not going to interface with you as a group, and that's fine, individually take them to the appropriate person. Following the terms of the contract, that's exactly what Mr. Turpin did. Latin would have the court read all of these emails, including the August email, which I, I did not mention, not out of an intent to hide it, but I, I just didn't mention it, including the August email in the white least favorable to the Turpins. Mr. Turpin is simply asking for an individual explanation. He's saying, look, I know you're volunteers, but I need to understand what's best for my child. I need to understand what's going on. So... The second part of the contract claim, this is the strangest waiver argument I've ever heard. We've asserted that Latin breached the contract by failing to educate the kids. They, they terminated the contract and failed to educate the kids because the termination wasn't justified. That justification is for Latin to demonstrate later on in the case. If Latin wants to demonstrate that, they, that the Turpins had made it impossible, they certainly can do that through marshalling evidence, but at this point, the contract required that Latin 
uh, educate the children, Latin failed to do so. More to the point, I'm not sure how we were supposed to, it seems like the specific problem is that we didn't reference the parent-school partnership. Paragraph six of the enrollment agreements specifically incorporates the parent-school partnership as part of the contract, meaning that if you breach the enrollment agreement, you violate it by violating, excuse me, if you violate a term of the parent-school partnership, you can breach the enrollment agreement writ large. The parent-school partnership is an attachment that's been incorporated into what everyone agrees is the contract. The final point with respect to the contract Latin seems to put a lot of emphasis on things that are missing from the complaint. This is still a notice pleading state. We are still under Conley against Gibson. We have not adopted the Twombly and Iqbal standard. And so to say that we pleaded ourselves out of court by pleading too much, but not, not, just not enough in the right areas, that's inconsistent with notice pleading. The court should construe all reasonable inferences in my client's favor and doing so the August email becomes easily explainable as a parent who is just asking for more information from the school and a school who then, upon hearing the next peep out of this parent who has a legitimate concern, concludes apparently that the relationship is impossible and terminates the contract. As it relates to the defamation claim, as it relates to the defamation claim, what you've heard from us is a competing interpretation of the PowerPoint. I, I respect Ms. Van Zandt's interpretation of the PowerPoint. I understand uh, her point. The problem is, on the standard of review, reading the PowerPoint as a whole and drawing all the inferences in the light most favorable to the Turpins, the question is, is well, it but a if the contract says it's black and you want it to say it's, or if the PowerPoint says it's black and you want it to say it's white, and you plead it's white, we don't have to take your assertion that it's white. Do you we? do not have to take that assertion, but I don't think the PowerPoint's that clear. Specifically, the reference, the reference that Latin accepts students and hires faculty because of their color, there's not a mention of, there's no mention of that anywhere in the PowerPoint. It does mention DEI, but I think that that phrase in and of itself is ambiguous enough that the court can conclude that that's a false statement. Moreover, well, again, we've pointed out most of the allegations or most of the documentary exhibit pages they rely on are 37 and 44. As we've pointed out, the PowerPoint says, quote unquote, eventually erode. That's the concern. Finally, I want to respond to this idea that it will keep private schools from engaging. The Turpins did choose Latin, and Latin happily accepted the Turpins' money, um, even after apparently they were questioning things earlier on in the process. This issue of, of Latin and uh, of Latin being able to engage is also the flip side to the issue of school choice. And here, the Turpins chose Latin. Latin then concluded that they should not have chose Latin. It, is act it, it prevents parents from exercising their rights to select schools. If Latin had simply thought... the school thought has also a right of who they... A private school has a right of who they're going to accept, too, don't they? They do, they do Your Honor, and I, I, I concede that, but Latin accepted the Turpins in February. All they had to do was wait until the next February to not, re not renew the year enrollment agreement. I see I'm out of time. We'd ask that the court reverse. Thank you. Thank you.